at the end of the day, you have to live with your own legacy and how you spent your time. And I think people sometimes take time for granted. You do not know how much time you have. If today, if today was your last day, like the end of today, midnight was your last day, would you be happy with how you spent your time? Would you be proud of it? Would you feel like you spent it well? And if the answer to that question is no, then change it. Because you're assuming you have more than midnight today. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Next Move podcast. And if this is your first time on the show, we are a podcast that share the impactful stories behind people and organizations in India. And today I'm very lucky to be joined by Akanksha Hazari, who is the CEO and founder of Love Local. And Love Local are on a mission to digitize and enable the local retailers of India. And I think now more than ever during COVID, we're seeing the importance that the local retailer plays to the economy. If they are not successful and if we are not enabling them, our economy is going to be massively hit because they play such a critical and large role in our economy, unlike Western economies or unlike other countries. So I'm very excited to have you on, Akanksha. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Good. So uh, the, way, the way, like I was telling you before, the way we start these podcasts is, could you give a little bit of a background behind yourself? Um, what do you do? What is Love Local? And uh, a little bit of the mission that you're on. Sure. Uh, so Love Local in one line is bringing your trusted local shops online. Uh, and the vision and mission behind the company is to empower our local shops with all the tools that they need to serve, we call India 2.0, and India, that India that is far more digitally driven, a consumer base uh, whose behavior is very much different from their parents' generation. And local businesses for the first time are going to have to meaningfully transform the way they serve consumers to stay in business. And one aspect of that is bringing um, shops online so that consumers can have the same experience of ordering online or ordering, discovering their neighborhood first and foremost. I don't know about you, but if you were to ask me about all the local shops in my neighborhood right now, I don't think any of us could list them. It's incredibly hard to actually know even all the local businesses that could serve us in our area. So the first is enabling us to discover our neighborhoods and the products within those shops and potentially great offers and deals that may be very uh, close within our reach. And then enable us to actually order from those shops online, uh, pay online, uh, obviously get home delivery if we choose or a more convenient you know, shop pickup or curbside pickup experience and also empower our retailers with additional services like um, we have Love Local Logistics which is an on-demand logistics solution for our shops. Um, we have tools like a loyalty program, CRM, digital marketing, basically an end-to-end -end stack to bring shops online and transform their business operations so that they can continue to compete. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, COVID is highlighting the importance of local businesses. But for context, local businesses in India are accountable for 40% of jobs in the country. And so when local shops fail, we have an economic crisis on our hands. And I'm not sure if everyone kind of thinks about it in that context sometimes. Uh, and that's the problem we're out to solve. That, that's, that's awesome. And I really don't think people know the like 40% figures because it's, it's something that you see every day on your way to work, uh, when you're going to buy your groceries, whatever, but you don't really know that the critical role, because you see all these big businesses and you probably say, you know, these are the ones that account for most of the economy, but it's our local entre micro entrepreneurs. Uh, so I think that's a, such an awesome mission. Uh, but I want to probably take a step back, a few steps back. Uh, so you, you grew up, you, you were born in Pune, but then you moved to Hong Kong. And I, I read online that you, you started off with pretty humble beginnings, but you guys you know, grew and grew and grew. Could you, could you talk about that and, and how that played a key role in, in you eventually starting Love Local? Sure. Uh, so yeah, like you said, I was born in Pune. And um, when I was about eight, between eight and nine, uh, my family ended up moving to Hong Kong. Uh, but yeah, we started off um, very humbly. Um, you know, we lived in a very, very small, small place. Um, my parents didn't have the benefit of, you know, going to university, like the opportunity they gave me. And 
There are times where it was, you know, very much counting pennies for us and the family. Um, and touch wood, you know, my parents worked really hard. And my mom went to university for the first time when she was 45 because we could afford it. And it was a dream that she'd always had to go to university and, and, and study and went on to get many degrees once she could do that. Um, so we started off, you know, with, with very little, but our story, you know, my parents, when they got married, had 45 rupees in their pocket just for context. So it was very much that they built the family up from scratch and touch wood, you know, the gods looked in our favor in many ways and, and they're doing very well today. And, and, you know, we lived through that process of, of building up, um, building up over time. Um, but that gave me a view that, um, you know, there's a lot of people in this work world who work super hard, um, but they don't have the same trajectory always and not by any fault of their own because sometimes the system is stacked against people. Um, and I then became very motivated that I wanted to make sure that more people were able to have that trajectory. So if you work hard and you have aspirations and ambitions, you should be able to be successful. And I wanted to work on meaningful things that had some kind of impact on the world and specifically in some way, even the playing field, uh, because I don't think we live in the world, a world where the playing field is particularly even. Um, and ended up, you know, touch wood, I, like I said, I, I was able to go to university. I was able to go to Princeton um, and kind of work my way through Princeton. I used to wash dishes there. Um, and have been working very hard since I think I was like in my early teens. I don't remember not working 18 hour days in some way or the other. Um, and instead of driving me towards, um, you know, a big paycheck and like kind of the investment banking opportunities, I think much to my, my own parents' frustration, I realized that I want to do something that, you know, contributed in some way because I feel very grateful as well for the path we ended up on and the opportunities I've had. And I wanted to play a role in paying it forward in some way or using it uh, to empower others. And so I pursued this path of um, initially thinking I should be in kind of law and policy and politics, which very honestly, I hated um, and realized it's just not for me. But during that time, kind of discovered that businesses are able to have a huge impact in the world um, and thought, oh, I could be an entrepreneur. Like I could build a business and this business could make a difference in a lot of people's lives. And I want to build businesses that make a meaningful impact. Uh, and that's kind of where the journey started. And when I look at Love Local, the reason why we do this is because we are, you know, evening the playing field, playing field for local businesses. Um, they don't have a partner that solves what for them is a very intimidating problem of technology and digitization. Yeah, they really don't. And I think, um, so when I moved into my building about a year ago, uh, there's a little grocery store downstairs in the building and he notes everything down on a piece of paper. And every day I tell him like, dude, like, come on, get a little computer. Like you're going to digitize, you're going to be able to be much more effective. But a lot of times that kind of movement toward it by yourself is really intimidating if you don't have all the information. Um, so I, I also wanted to point at something interesting. You nearly became a professional squash player. Yeah. <laughs> could, you, yeah. could you talk about that? Uh, so I, um, so when we moved to Hong Kong, Hong Kong has an incredible sports program. Uh, so the government actually provides free classes in like all types of sports for every person that lives in Hong Kong. So there's no kind of barrier there. You can go and get training in like any sport for a couple of uh, times a week. And that's actually how they scout local talent. So I ended up uh, joining the government uh, squash classes and I used to go for classes twice a week. I was about nine then. Um, and I really love sports. Um, and yeah, I turned out to be pretty good at it. So I quickly made the national team. And then I love squash. I have a deep love for the sport. I think it's, um, I call it athletic chess because you really have to also think on the court about, you know, what moves you're going to make. You're designing for moves that are like four or five steps ahead on every point. Um, yeah. And I ended up, uh, becoming the captain of the junior national team. Um, I won a bunch of international titles. And by the time I was 15, I was in the top 20 juniors in the world. Um, and then I actually went to Princeton when, when I was 16 or 17. So I had to kind of make that call. And the, the 
had made with my parents was if squash got into the Olympics at the time, which was the Beijing Olympics, then I would have gone pro. But if they don't get into the Olympics, then I'll go to, I'll go to college. <laughs> and I think my parents must have bribed the IOC officials because it's still not in the Olympics. So I definitely <laughs> 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 college. <laughs> wow. That, that's awesome that you could get to such a high level of playing squash. And then, you know what, didn't get in the Olympics. So I'm just uh, going to Princeton as, as we all do. Um, uh, so, so you, you, you ended up going to Princeton and um, you arrived at Princeton on September 12th of 2001, which is, you know, obviously 9-11 and that's, that's the day after. That's a very, you know, that must have been a crazy experience. Could you talk about that a little bit? So I actually was on campus before September 11th. September 11th was my first morning of my first semester there. Um, so I actually very vividly remember I was, um, so I was in Butler College and I was in the international students, uh, dorm. It was, a uh, the women's dorm and I came down the stairs and, um, this girl, uh, in one of the, in obviously a roommate in the building was, uh, Michelle, she was watching TV. And I was like, what is that? And everyone was crowding around. And honestly, it was very surreal. I think for, for many people, initially, I thought it was a movie. It just didn't seem like this was something that was really happening. Uh, and then as we started to process it, like the impact of it hit home. And I mean, those first few days, I remember, you know, there were so many calls on campus because obviously Princeton is very close to New York. We had a lot of students who had family in New York and all the international students, obviously our parents are trying to reach us because we had just come. And a lot of us either landed in JFK or we landed in Newark and we had landed the night before. So it was a very real possibility that we could still be stuck in New York or on our way to university. There's just a lot of chaos and the, the phone lines eventually went down on campus. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are obviously very tragically many students who lost, um, who lost parents. And it kind of created a very, I think, unique um, Princeton experience because the, the first year was, was a lot of conversations about this because it brought to the fore um, the Middle East, obviously, the world's relation, the U.S.'s relationship with the Middle East. There was a lot of confusion on campus suddenly about like people like you and me and like, are we Arab? Are we Indian? Are we Iranian? What does that mean? Um, and I think people suddenly had to figure out a part of the world and that we also all don't look the same. <laughs> so uh, just because we are broadly of the broad, the brown background <laughs> doesn't mean we are of the same ethnicity. I remember being in like, so, I mean, there were unfortunately some very ignorant people who would, um, so there was a slur at the time, not just at Princeton, but in the States called sand nigger, uh, which was for people like, uh, you and me. Uh, because they kind of put us all in the same bucket. Um, and there were a lot of interesting, I think, campuses, uh, like conversations around campus about um, whether this justified going to war and the value of life and, and um, the value of an American life over other countries' lives. I remember these. It was an interesting, I think, uh, important time. Obviously, it's shaped the world for many decades to come. But I think at the very least, it, it forced a lot of people to learn about parts of the world they hadn't really thought about, but in a meaningful way over the coming years. So. Yeah, I, I can imagine that must have been, especially like you're saying, nobody really knew about, you know, our side of the world. They kind of, even when I went to college, they kind of just frame us all into one area. And then it's just like, this is who you are, you know, yeah. India, Sri Lanka, whatever it is, like, it's all the same. So, so I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in the U.S. at that time, and uh, but but it led you to action, so it got you to start your first venture called Young Professionals for Foreign Policy Forum. Um, could you talk about that organization a little bit, and why did that particular experience lead you to starting this organization? Sure. So I started a little bit earlier because at Princeton, like I had gone in as a pre-med student um, and I quickly changed to pre-law um, and I actually ended up doing, so I majored in politics and economics and I did a minor in Middle East studies um, actually because of 9-11. I don't think it would have happened had I not been in the U.S. and in Princeton at 
just after 9-11 happened. So I myself honestly did not know a huge amount about the Middle East and became very, very curious about this part of the world that was shaping our lives, like all of our lives for decades to come. Uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, it's also what led me to think like, okay, maybe I'll go into politics or law or something like that as a, as a, as a profession that can make a difference in this world positively. So I ended up uh, not doing investment banking and going to Washington on a not a very well-paid job <laughs> and working for a policy think tank called the Aspen Institute and actually in their Middle East strategy group. Um, and in parallel, uh, obviously, there were a lot of, you know, young ones like me who had just moved to D.C. after graduating and you know, you've just finished a degree and you think the world really cares about your opinion and then you enter the real world and realize like you're literally at like the bottom of the ladder <laughs> in the world's eyes. Um, and there was me and a few friends who would meet together and discuss what was happening at the time and, you know, would constantly say, I wish we could ask, you know, this politician why they made this decision or this business person why they made this decision and said, well, um, why don't we put together a group? And this was really the, is the, really the brainchild of Josh who said like, let's put together a group that um, we can meet together and have these discussions. And there's no think tank, like there's the Aspen Institute, there's a consul on foreign relations, but none of these think tanks talk to people in our age group. So we called it the gap between college and the council on foreign relations, which is about your early twenties to your early forties. They're not grooming us as leaders. They're not including us in the conversation. How do you expect us to be good leaders in the future? And more and more, the younger generation, the world is changing so fast that the younger generation has very valid viewpoints that current leaders need to know about and take into account. Um, and said, let's start this conversation with a, the first think tank, uh, which is called Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. Um, and that's going to address this gap. And so uh, it started, yeah, right out of when I came to DC, Josh, me, and there was a Sean, a bunch of us. And it honestly started with a very small group. And then um, we built it out into, initially the concept was private off the record um, conversations with today's leaders, with tomorrow's leaders. We would curate and have a selective membership for the young people we let into the group because we wanted high potential young people, as we call them, people who are very serious and really would be in positions of power in the future, maybe in 10, 20, 30 years. And then today's leaders, um, obviously people in positions of power today. So our first roundtable, I remember, uh, was at the Aspen Institute with Wolf Blitzer, and we very quickly built up a roster of like amazing people, Chatham House Rules, and the conversations were really compelling. And I think one, so I had started very quickly after that the Middle East series um, within YPFP, and um, these were private dinners and roundtables with ambassadors from the Middle East at the embassies. And we were having at YPFP a roundtable and dinner with the ambassador of Syria. And our members were, you know, young people from the State Department, you know, all walks of life. And this was a time where officially the U.S. government was not speaking to Syria, the government of Syria. And our roundtable and our discussion actually became almost this backdoor conversation at a time where official conversation was not allowed. So... You know, it was a really interesting um, experience, and I do think we made a difference then, and YPFP continues to grow and continues to make a difference today. So after starting and growing the organization, I read that you, you turned down some VC offers to move to the Gaza Strip, and that was in 2007, right? Yeah. So, so during, during the war? Yeah, so the 2007 war was going on, uh, which was the Gaza war, yeah. And that, that's really awesome for me because it's such, a, it's such a different decision than most of us would make. And so what was the thinking behind it? What, what did you want to go do? What did you end up doing? And what was really what was the thinking behind it? Uh, so basically, I had been at the Aspen Institute at that point for two years. And to be honest, like I just found DC very challenging. Um, one, I realized politics is not for me. I didn't find, I found it to be incredibly opaque and filled with personal agendas. And that's where, um, so my role at the Aspen Institute and in the Middle East Strategy Group was to uh, work on um, economic projects that brought together 
um, an Israeli businessman and a Palestinian businessman in a joint venture uh, for to, to create a business venture um, that would benefit both sides. And the thesis was if there are business interests in peace, there is more likely to be peace. Um, there's some projects that we worked on that uh, unfortunately didn't work well. We had a hospital in Gaza that eventually got bombed. Uh, we tried to create an outsourcing uh, setup because uh, obviously Palestinians have limited movement. So the thinking there was if we create a BPO in Palestine, um, you know, it's a way to create employment. Um, Palestinians are actually among, if not at the time, the highest levels of education of all countries in the Middle East or always one of the highest. So they are like, they focus a lot on education. They actually, most, most Palestinians speak English, like they're incredibly smart population of people. So it's like actually great for a BPO business. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get access to the infrastructure that was needed to launch it um, because of the conflict and the situation on the ground. Uh, but then one project that did well was a Palestinian loan guarantee facility, which is a 200 million loan guarantee dollar loan guarantee facility to support Palestinian-owned SMEs. Um, so we did some projects, and like I said, my I didn't enjoy the politics of it. I really enjoyed the business of it, and I enjoyed the, I believed in the thesis that when you have business interests in peace, there's more likely to be peace. Uh, but what I found in DC is I was interacting with people that not only didn't speak Arabic, um, so I, I had learned Arabic, um, and but had never been to Palestinian, Palestine or Israel. Uh, or the Middle East, and somehow, you know, it was this felt like this ivory tower, like these people thousands of miles away sitting and making decisions for people they've never met, understood their culture, spoke their language, understood how this impacts their day to day life. And that just didn't sit well with me. And I felt really insincere being a part of that type of um, organization or that type of environment. So I decided I wanted to kind of move on and I felt that it was only like a, the honest thing to do, frankly, and the sincere thing to do to go and live there and see, okay, I've spent two years working on this. I need to see like what this all means for the people that it's supposed to help. Um, so I left the Aspen Institute and technically was working. Uh, so over those two years, I'd built relationships with both Israeli leaders and Palestinian leaders. So they created a project for me that I could go and basically understand the situation of the ground, uh, on the ground. So I was working on a project and I spent nearly, um, I think nearly a year in the end there. Um, and yeah, this was during the 2007 war. So I mostly was living in the West Bank, uh, between the West Bank and Jerusalem. Um, and yeah, it, it gave me a, a whole new wor uh, view of the world um, and definitely influenced me a lot in terms of you know, we talk about how um, poverty is the worst thing, but poverty and war is the worst thing. Um, I think in at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, safety is actually the foundation and, and not um, necessarily first shelter and, and food and all these other things. Because you see families there that don't know if their home is going to be there the next day. You don't know if your kids are going to come home or your husband or your wife is going to come home after leaving the house. Um, and that creates an entire whole other level of obviously stress and complexity that most of us in the world, thankfully, never have to experience. So I think one thing we, we sometimes underestimate in India is just to have a country that's at peace is an incredible benefit that we have that a lot of places in the world don't have. Um, so yeah, that was one of the, the, the key things among many other things I learned that year. Wow. And did you, like you, you were talking about safety, did you feel safe when you were there? How did you feel amongst all that was going on? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not safe, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are many things that didn't make day-to-day -day life particularly safe. And unfortunately, like many um, incidents, I was very fortunate that I had um, wonderful Palestinian friends and family who took care of me. I also had one or two um, kind of, I would say, mentors on the Israeli side that probably through an invisible hand were kind of um, making sure, in a broad sense, I was okay. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there were tanks that came into, you know, Ramallah when we were one day around gunfire. There's a lot of things in day-to-day -day life that were just part of living in a conflict zone. 
and I speak Arabic and, and um, I look Arab. So because of that, there are many times that um, on the Israeli side, I was understood to be um, Arab or Palestinian, which gave me a very small view. And I will never say it's anywhere close to the view of what it is actually like to live and grow up there. A tiny view of a fraction of what um, it must be to live there to live there every single day and obviously I have no context for you know my home is not there I haven't seen my family go through you know very challenging or terrible things um, one actually really special moment I got to be part of was the prisoners release so there was a, a big prisoners release that happened in 2007 and I was in Ramallah at the uh, Abu Mazen uh, President Muhammad's the presidential compound so uh, is they had negotiated a deal and um, I forgot the number of prisoners. It must have been at least a few hundred, if not a, a thousand prisoners that were released that, ha that had been uh, in jails on the Israeli side. And I got to be there that day, which was incredible. So the compound was filled with all the families of these prisoners. And keep in mind, these prisoners are not necessarily criminals. These are, in some cases, young children who were taken when they were 11, 12 years old and put in prison. Uh, for political activism um, and I remember the buses coming in and just the emotion like all the families had pictures of sometimes very young children or their kids that had been taken at a young age um, and as the buses came in and people started spotting their families they actually started climbing out of the windows and the families started coming into the windows and it was a really really beautiful special moment I feel very grateful to be a part of but it was also very tragic that this this is happening in the world, you know? And also it makes you realize how lucky you are. I, I bet that really puts everything into context for you. And what, what I really like about that story in particular is that, you know, a lot of us, we have urges to do something, start something, try something new, whatever it is. And a lot of us may not execute. And what I like in, about this story is that you had this idea and you actually went out into the deep end and 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 did it and that's what i've learned from a lot of these podcasts is that what what separates some people is the actual ability to do and to go out there and actually execute on what you're saying uh, so I, I think that's an awesome story and, and moving on to the next bit i, I know i'm skipping a few steps but you, you went on to cambridge to do your mba and um, here is where really the idea and the story for Empani, which eventually became Love Local, came about. So could you talk about how the idea came about? Sure. Uh, so after this, actually, I had gone into consulting and because I realized I like business, I, I went and said, let me learn a little bit about business and get that training. And after that, I came back to India because I had it after um, working on YPFP. I realized that I like to start and build things and I knew that um, I wanted to gain more experience, but ultimately I wanted to start and build something again. And the next time I wanted to do it in India. So between YPFP and basically um, Mpani, now Love Local, um, I was basically training myself to be very honest. And that was a very deliberate set of decisions and skill sets that I knew I wanted to get. And one part after consulting, which was the business training side of things, I came back to India to understand the situation, the realities of the country, where we are, uh, what the opportunities are, what are the interesting and important problems to solve. And so I spent a year working at an organization called a consulting firm called Technosur, which is a development consulting firm. And they specifically actually serve exactly this purpose. They take People, um, young people who are super interested in doing something, you actually can't work for them for more than a year or two. They actually cut you off. The idea is like, come join us, work on a meaningful problem, and maybe you'll go and start something, or maybe you'll take make career choices that are more impact-led than kind of paycheck-led. Um, and so I ended up joining them. They put me on this wonderful project um, that basically allowed me to live in villages across India for a year which was amazing because that's what I wanted. I wanted to see not just India, but Bharat. Um, and I basically uh, was working on this agri-tech project, which was looking at how you could increase farmer income. And this was the first mobile revolution, this was 2011. Uh, and that little Nokia phone was coming into everybody's hands. Um, and so, you know, when I was traveling, I got to see like, oh, there's, this is the beginning of a really special chapter in India. Um, 
and we're going to be able to build new businesses. And this, the access to mobile and the access to connectivity suddenly means that new solutions are possible and we can build things for a segment of society that has been highly underserved and undersolved for. Uh, so I got really interested in agriculture, but I also became really interested in small businesses because wherever I would travel, even the smallest villages, and I was really lucky I got to go in the Northeast, like all the way into like the mountains of Arunachal, but you had your local Karana and you had, you know, your local Karana and some kind of chemist. And I was like, wow, like how did this distribution that we have in India is amazing. And, you know, Obviously, it's important because Coca-Cola figured out how to deliver this like bottle of Coke all the way to this like mountaintop in Arnachal so someone could buy it. Um, and so I became like agriculture and local businesses um, are two places I think are like backbones of our economy. And those were the seeds of what became or is Love Local today that can we solve a problem for local businesses? And that I'm going to Cambridge, to be honest, more to kind of have a year to synthesize my thoughts because um and put together a business plan and you know take a very deliberate step forward in starting something after that um so uh i went there ended up taking what were the seeds of love local today entering this business plan competition that honestly a friend of mine uh, fabio told me about much credit to him um and yeah, we ended up winning this and yeah, it wasn't an, an easy path getting the money to start, but that's how um, I actually got the money to actually seed the company. Now I want to talk about that money bit a little bit because I, I reading it, I can't really believe it. So Matt Damon is involved in this story. Uh, Bill Clinton and the Holtz are also involved in this story. So could you talk about the challenge of actually getting the money that you earned? Uh, yeah, so we ended up winning the Halt Prize, which was a million-dollar prize for the winning solution and the winning team to go basically launch and build the solution. Now, this was, the, I think, the first or second year they had this million-dollar prize and the structure that they had put in place to protect from effectively, I think their fear was students would take the million dollars and just, like, spend it away, uh, was they would bring a partner um, that would basically be kind of the manager of the funds. Um, but effectively, there are funds we're supposed to draw down from them, have access to them, we build a business plan, everything. Uh, so we end up winning, and the partner that year is Water.org, which is Matt Damon's nonprofit. Um, and uh, we win, and it becomes very clear within a few weeks that Water.org has no intention of giving us access to this money. Um, and after me harassing them for, for many weeks, the best they come out with was, hey, we'll give you like a, a, an internship on a stipend with water.org as a, somehow a trade for your million dollars. And uh, obviously that's not okay. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, I mean, to be fair to my teammates, they were not as like crazy as me. And like, I was adamant that we won this money. <laughs> I was gonna start this business. Uh, they went on to, to go on and, and take jobs and I just kept fighting for, it took nearly nine months. So six months, I graduated or Cambridge finished, I believe in May. Uh, it became very clear by the summer that this was actually what's happening. Initially, they tried to string us along and they would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're getting back to you, blah, blah, blah. Then I was very demotivated and like, I was like, because I had made a promise to myself at, at Cambridge, like, you're not applying for any jobs. Like either you figure out a business or you're going to be unemployed. Um, and I had a business and I thought I'd, I'd figured out a way to seed it. And I was like, oh God, like I'm going to have to go and get a job now, aren't I? And I was like, I just refuse to, refuse to kind of let go of the, the goal that I had set. And so by October and November, I made a decision to email all the judges and get in touch with Philip Holt directly. Then things started moving very quickly because I was like a terrible pain in the ass for them. <laughs> so eventually in January, Philip Holt was like a conscious, just like get on a plane and come to London and let's talk about this in person. Um, the Holts were, uh, were really nice about it. And I worked directly with Philip Holt to figure this out in the end. Um, and eventually he gave me my share uh, initially was 200k and then an additional 100k across like it was a salary structure it was not like a straight check so I would get installments every month 
uh, over a certain period. Uh, and technically I was employed, like I, I, anyways, it was like a strange structure, but I ended up getting my 300K to start uh, What's Love Local today. And then I immediately got on a plane and came to Bombay and started to put together, put together what the business is today. That's, that's so insane to me that this competition actually ended up benefiting uh, water.org and not the actual winners of the competition. And then, uh, you know, it seems like a pretty good deal for them and Matt Damon to just say, yeah, I'll partner with you to get a million dollars. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Um, uh, I always think, I, I didn't watch, I was really mad at all Matt Damon movies for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but he also makes really good movies, okay? Yeah, <laughs> so. That's that's so crazy, honestly, and it, it's kind of just funny how Matt Damon is there. Um, so so you persisted and you got the money that you wanted, not all of it, but you got a lot of the seed money that you wanted, and you moved back to India to actually execute on this idea. Um, so, but but there was a little bit of a pivot, right? You you the initial idea was to partner with telecom companies, but then you moved to partnering with local retailers. Can you talk a little bit about that pivot? Why did you guys choose to go down that road? Uh, so basically the first thing, the first um, feature that we built was a loyalty program. Now it was a loyalty program that was focused on, like I said, not the kind of top few million consumers. We said, let's build a first loyalty program that's for Mass India. Now Mass India shops in her local businesses. And so what would be required is a combination of, look, we looked at where do people spend because we want them to be able to earn points on their everyday spend. Uh, at the time, it was mobile recharge was a big part of it. And that's where the telecom played a role. And then it's rest is local neighborhood stores. So I can earn points every time I go to my Kirana or my chemist or my fruits and vegetable guys, I'll earn points. Plus I'll earn points for charging my phone. Uh, so that's where the telco piece came in. And um, it was a way for us to, get a foothold in working with local businesses and also focus on the consumer segment we wanted to solve for, which is like the next billion broadly. Um, and in 2000, so we built this, we launched it in a couple of pin codes in, uh, in Mumbai, specifically starting in CBD. And um, in 2015, ended up raising our first round of institutional capital from uh, an investor, Bloom, like by Bloom Ventures here. Um, and 2016, we properly kind of built a product around this. And, and I think sometimes we ourselves forget how quickly India has changed. Um, because in 2016, Geo had not happened. You know, our first products were built on SMS and were run on short code. <laughs> you know, so the retailers had their the loyalty feature, which was the first, first feature in the loyalty solution for shops. Uh, and for consumers, it was all by SMS. So retailers would have a short code. If you earn points, they would put like phone number, short code, number of points or bill amount, and number of points earned. And consumers would track everything on SMS. Um, and then in the last, you know, we know three years, like so many things have happened from demonetization, GST regulation, obviously geo. Uh, now we also have, unfortunately, COVID, but COVID is a massive, you know, digital push again. Um, and so we then started building into the stack. So over the last three years, we started with loyalty as a first feature for shops uh, and then built digital marketing and CRM. And recently, at the beginning of this year, launched shops, as we call it, as the core feature, which is this ability to, uh, to have commerce go through. So actually taking the shop fully online uh, where loyalty, um, marketing, and CRM become value-added features and not the core feature. But the main solution is now take your business online so you're discoverable, you can, um, you can sell online, um, and you can have all these services for this new consumer. So you mentioned the concept of loyalty and that being fundamental to the business model. Um, you know, big companies like Amazon and Walmart, they do that as you spend, you get more rewards to get back and you can spend it on other things. But that concept hadn't really been applied to the mass market in India, which is the local retailer. So could you talk about the importance of that concept to the business and as well as uh, you, you once said that loyalty is the gateway to data and the data is so important for these local retailers to be successful. So could you, could you talk about loyalty a little bit? 
So, I mean, loyalty, I mean, even today, there's no real loyalty program for Mass India, right? Um, it's usually for people who are already very wealthy to get us to spend more for that upgrade or for that coffee or whatever it is. Uh, it seems like the more wealth you have, the more you get rewarded, which is very counterintuitive. Um, and so the, this is a loyalty program whose goal was like, how do we not focus on getting people to spend more? We just are saying like, you're buying food anyway. You're buying rice, you're buying flour, you're buying biscuits, whatever it is, you're buying food anyways. Can we give you points instead of buying, say, products like X soap, you buy Y soap. For you, it's the same cost impact, but you get a little bit of benefit because there's an impact to the brand or the seller or uh, shopping at A shop versus B shop, hypothetically. Um, and so that was the thesis. Like for consumers, it's the first time they're going to get rewarded for things they're already spending on. It's going to be core spend, not discretionary spend. Hence also, you know, charging your phone. And this was on the consumer side, a great way to start tracking your spend um, and getting value for it. And you could use, collect these points. It was the same. Uh, it is the same points currency across all types of uh, spend, all types of shops. And you can go and redeem it the next time, which creates savings for you. In your household. Uh, on the retail side, um, loyalty across the world is really used to understand your consumers. It's a tool. Like one benefit for sure is obviously customer retention and new customer acquisition. But at a foundational level, it's a way to understand who the hell your consumers are and what they're buying, and then take business actions on top of that to grow your business. And that's why we actually pick loyalty as the first feature, because now using loyalty. Uh, keep in mind, like you said, right, even your, your, your shop downstairs is still tracking things pen or paper. He has no view probably into a solid customer base. He'll have some sense of it today of phone numbers in his phone, maybe the phone numbers that he's doing home delivery to. But other than that, he doesn't have organized data about his customers and what they're buying. And loyalty was a first step into actually understanding, creating organized customer data and then understanding what's happening with your customers. And on top of that, then taking actions of rewarding, marketing, engaging. Because without that data, you're a little bit flying blind. Like if you talk to most shop owners today, if you walk to any Kirana or fruits and vegetable seller, the key data points they'll be able to tell you about their business. They're like, okay, how many customers do you have? They're like, I have approximately 200 shoppers. And how many are loyal? approximately 30% or 40% are repeats and 60% are, you know, walk-ins. Um, what do you know about your sales? I have X amount of sales per month. I have X amount of orders per day and I have X amount of orders, uh, sales per day. Beyond that and saying, okay, can you tell me who shopped last month and hasn't shopped this month? It stops there. And that's a very basic, basic data point. You would need to know as a business, like, how do I talk, make sure that I have this consistent core database um, or customers that come to me every single month? Do you, uh, do you know who shopped for the first time last month? Can we make sure that they come back this month again by just telling them you have this offer or that you have this product that they need because you knew what they bought? Um, like if you look at uh, some of the data, for example, people who have babies have very high frequency spend. So, um, if you know, like you're tracking that and you say, oh, someone bought diapers, for example, or they bought baby powder, then you can tell them, hey, in three days, reminder, do you need more diapers mm -hmm. or baby powder? And make sure they stay sticky to you through that service versus potentially going in that time, like about four or five years ago, the concern was more about for shops going to another shop. But today is, oh, going to another online platform or going to a DMART or going to a big bazaar. We have mm -hmm. to keep consumers local. Yeah, and, and I want to put you in touch with our grocery store guy downstairs because, you know, no matter how much I tell him, uh, he's, he's not listening. And um, I, I told him the other day, like, dude, this soy milk has been sitting on your shelf for the last, like, 10 weeks. Uh, so it would, it would really help them out with inventory optimization and, and all the things, like you said, just having that data. Um, but another thing I want to talk about uh, is I, I listened to an interview where you said uh, the entire team, regardless of position, goes and visits the local retailers every single day, and so do you yourself. Uh, so could you talk about the importance and the value of that? Sure. 
So daily basis, I think now that that was like the early days, but at least every week we're talking to customers. So we as like, even I as a routine talk to customers every week and I have like my own like broadcast list and WhatsApp group for the customers that I've engaged with. Um, I think it's really important to be obsessed with your customer and stay very close to your customer. I think first and foremost, it, it makes you empathetic to their problems and make sure you're solving real problems for them, not problems you imagine that they would have. Um, and um, make sure from empathy you build products that solve their problems, products that are kind to them. Um, and by that, I mean, you can still solve someone's problem, but, have, and not, but not care about how easy it is to use or the fact that it is a product designed how they would prefer to use it. Um, and this is obviously, you know, around great UI UX. So I think being very close to your customer is super important. And I think after that, for you to be a strong business comes as a result of you being customer obsessed and, and empathetic. Um, and I think one of the reasons you see so many businesses in India today, this first generation of businesses that are consumer focused and they're focused on the first 5 million because everybody built for themselves. They built for us because the founder and the founding team um, understood themselves and therefore built for themselves. And now um, what you see is for the first time, which is awesome, there are founders who are going out there and like understanding farmers, you know, which means you have to go and do the uncomfortable work of spending a lot of time with farmers on farms outside of cities where there are no cafes and like the quality of life is not, you know, you're out of your comfort zone. Um, for us, you know, the way we learned about local shops, none of us are from a core retail background is we spent weeks, months, years at this point sitting in local shops. <laughs> You go and you sit in shops and you talk to owners and you see, and sometimes you go in a shop and you just spend hours like observing how they operate the shop, observing where their friction points are. That's how you understand that user because if, if you're building for users that are not you, it's gonna, there's gonna be a learning curve at the beginning that's only gonna come from time being spent with them. Um, mm -hmm. so I think I'm really excited to see more founders get out of their comfort zone and start solving for problems that are not for us in our cities um, when the majority of Indians live outside the cities. Um, they live in very different realities. Um, there's so many exciting industries to solve for. You just have to, you know, kind of move out of like Kormangala or Gurgaon or Hawaii, you know? And another thing that I want to touch on is, you know, Love Local is doing some really awesome stuff for both the customer and the retailer, which is really cool. You know, I read online that you have enabled customers to install new water filtration systems so they have better water and local retailers. I, I read that a Chaiwala was able to um, improve on his water filtration system, which meant he had better chai, which meant he could offer higher prices, which was... You know, that, that's a really an amazing, amazing thing that your company is doing. And um, ju just to close up, I, I want to ask and touch on one point. Um, I had brought it up earlier in the podcast, but it's this ability that, you know, you have. And what I found so cool about your story is that whatever idea you had or whatever passion you had, you jumped straight into it. You know, whether it's uh, going through the rural areas of India to find out what technologies would work for them or you know, moving to the Gaza Strip, you went and you just jumped in. Uh, could, you, could you talk about the idea of just jumping in to an opportunity or something that you want to pursue? Sure, um, so I think you give me a little bit too much credit there and, and you're very kind in that like I think a lot before I do this is probably the, the fact that I don't think enough and that's probably what my parents will say. So I think when you come from particularly backgrounds like mine, which, um, you know, have been a journey into, into as a family doing better and becoming successful, but also having context of not having much, um, I think you end up with one of two personalities. Either you end up like super risk averse mm -hmm. and you go and you want to make sure that you have stability, et cetera, or you which is the second, which is my case, you realize that if you were able to do that and you were able to get through that, then you're gonna be fine because you had nothing. 
you've had nothing, you've dealt with like massive challenges. So if you're able to overcome that, honestly, in that context, all these other things don't seem scary because fundamentally, I think that the, the thing I probably fear the most um, outside of say, obviously, you know, losing family and things like that is health. I think if you lose your mental health, that's scary to me or your physical health. But outside of that, if you're fortunate enough to be able to be, you know, acute, mentally acute and physically capable, then you can work. And I guess work doesn't scare me. And I'm okay with being uncomfortable. And I think there's honor in all kinds of work. I think, especially I think COVID has been great in showing this. At the end of the day, the essential workers were not you and me. The essential workers were the sanitation workers. They were the police officers. They're the doctors. They're the teachers. Um, all the people out there who on a day-to-day -day basis, unfortunately, do not get rewarded as they should or recognized as they should. And I think there's honor in all types of work. I think, unfortunately, our society doesn't always look at the world that way. And so I think if you see honor in all types of work and you're not afraid of work, then what's the worst that can happen? If it doesn't work, like the thing you wanted to try didn't work, especially you and me, like we will be fine. We are so lucky. We will figure out how to make an income, earn an income, like earn income, get a job. Like we will solve it. And yeah, it may be a little bit uncomfortable, but do we really need all the comforts that we have? We're very privileged to have them, but do we need them? No. Could we live without a lot of them? Yes, we could. And if we wanted them, we could figure out how to get them again. And most people don't have that. Um, so I think coming from that, that kind of context, I, that removes a lot of, the fear because what are you really afraid of then are you afraid of what people are going to think of you well they're not going to be around you know they're not going to be there they're not they're they're kind of those like horrible spectators on the sideline that frankly people who judge are going to judge even if you do something awesome they're still going to find something that was wrong with it so if you're doing it for them like forget it um at the end of the day you have to live with your own legacy and how you spent your time and I think people sometimes take time for granted. You do not know how much time you have. If today, if today was your last day, like the end of today, midnight was your last day, would you be happy with how you spent your time? Would you be proud of it? Would you feel like you spent it well? And if the answer to that question is no, then change it. Because you're assuming you have more than midnight today. Wow, that's... That that is so that's so powerful, and I think that's gonna that's gonna mean a lot to a lot of people who are looking to do something. The idea that we can fail and we can, you know, it's not the end of the world, and you know, there's so much that we can learn from it, is is such an awesome message to leave uh, this podcast with. So thank you everybody for tuning in. If you have any questions for Akansha, just let me know. Put it in the comment section below and I will make sure to forward them over to her. And if you haven't yet already, consider subscribing. Um, we release weekly new podcasts on impactful stories from India. So again, thanks everybody for listening. See you in the next one.